0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We were just saying with Gordon McDonald there, what are we going to talk about after the U.S. election in November? I don't know what they're going to talk about in the United States, the results maybe. I don't know, let's talk about what's going on down there with Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right. Are you prepared for all this to be over at the beginning of November?
2: I don't think things really will be over. I mean, there's a lot that can change between now and the vote. There's a lot that will have to be figured out after the vote. But even still, if we end up with a Democratic president down here, there's a lot of uh, change that is going to have to take place and a lot of relationships that might need to be rebuilt over four years. So uh, I don't think that we'll be running out of things to talk about, regardless who wins.
1: Oh, we'll still be talking to you then. So where are we at now? When is this next debate happening?
2: The next debate is set to happen on Thursday. And for all we know, it is actually going to take place as an actual debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in person. The topics have been selected. Uh, There is going to be one change, and that is that microphones will be muted at the very top of each segment to allow for both candidates to speak uninterrupted, because we saw what happened in the first debate where Joe Biden's microphone was essentially taken over by Donald Trump for the entire entire interview uh, the entire debate
1: okay and is this something that both sides have agreed to are they okay with it
2: well i mean both sides are pushing back slightly on uh the fact that there are changes but at the end of the day this is the final debate and donald trump understands that he is very quickly running out of time to try and boost up the lagging poll numbers that he's seeing across the country and in battleground states so he may be pushing back both on the fact that mics are being turned off and the debate topics but at the end of the day he needs this debate so they'll fight it but they'll show up
1: Like we always expect the race to kind of tighten up, right? The closer we get to the actual voting day. What has that been like?
2: So the race is tightening up if you look at key swing states and key battleground states. On a national picture, Joe Biden still has a commanding 10-point lead, but oftentimes that may lead more towards what the popular vote is, not the electoral college vote. And in states like Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Florida, the races are much, much closer, uh, where Joe Biden still is within the margin of error uh, with Donald Trump. So there is still a concerted effort to ensure that the vote is getting out there across these states. Uh, Democrats are telling their base, look, don't get compl- place and get out there and vote like we're trailing right now because they saw what happened in 2016
1: right and i know i've been seeing a lot of stories about that in the last few days about how some democrats are quite nervous because you know hillary clinton was technically leading in the polls
2: yeah, look, and Hillary Clinton, when she was leading, decided to not go to the states where she ultimately lost and Donald Trump was able to flip. So there's a push here by the Biden campaign to say, look, we may not be able to get to every single state because of the pandemic right now. So ensure that you're out there, you're casting your ballot, you're putting your ballot in the mailbox. And if you feel that you're OK to, you're standing in line on Election Day. Early voting right now, 30 million ballots have been cast. That's 20 percent of all the numbers from 2016 total. Uh, and right now, the early lead is for Democrats in the early uh, advanced ballots, Republicans, though, oftentimes vote in person. So there's a chance that these Hmm. kind of gaps right now are going to narrow.
1: And those are some long lineups we have seen for that early voting.
2: Yeah. And look, there are questions as to whether this is voter enthusiasm when you see 12 hour lineups in Georgia or whether there's a chance here that voter suppression is taking place and it's becoming more difficult for certain people to cast a ballot either in person or in places like Texas, where the governor at one point had put only one mailbox for drop offs in each county, including something like, you know, Dallas and Houston, which are obviously huge. That's been overturned. But the long lineups, sure, it is a good thing for democracy. You just have to look deeper into that to see whether or not somebody's actually being uh, given a difficult task of being able to try and cast their ballot.
1: I mean, I was hearing some of these lineups are hours and hours long. I mean, that speaks to, I think, some voter enthusiasm, doesn't it? If people are
2: willing to do that? Yeah, look, it definitely does speak to enthusiasm. And the fact that we're seeing the numbers at such great numbers from where we were in 2016 shows that there is an active interest here in order to try and get the vote out there. You just have to look at certain Republican states that may be trying to stop Democratic voters from being able to cast a ballot. You also have to watch for these poll uh, watchers that the president is trying to get his kind of crew out there to potentially get in the way of a ballot. There's a lot that can happen in the next two weeks.
1: Okay, so where are the two candidates focusing their time in the next two weeks?
2: Battleground states. You're going to see Florida become a key state. You're going to see uh, North Carolina, but you're really going to see Pennsylvania become the key state. Uh, Donald Trump has been there five or six times in the last month. This is... Joe Biden's home state. Uh, uh, Twenty electoral college votes are up for grabs right now. It is a close race between both of them. And the win of Pennsylvania on November 3rd could be the make or break for either candidate. This is going to be a cash cow for the campaigns. Mm -hmm. And since Biden has so much money to spend, you're going to see him drop a lot of money in the Keystone state.
1: All right, Reggie, thanks for the update. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. We are coming down to the wire now for the U.S. election. Another debate, or the final one, this week, as Reggie mentioned, on Thursday, the rules will be slightly different. And I think something people will be relieved to hear is that there's going to be a microphone cutoff switch. So there won't be as much, you would hope, talking over each other as we saw in that first U.S. presidential debate, but we'll see about that. Better, faster testing and a vaccine. Those are the ways that we are going to to eventually beat COVID-19. Vaccine, of course, is being worked on by numerous research groups all over the world. Faster testing, same thing. And we're getting closer, actually, to a 15-minute COVID-19 test. And a Vancouver-based company, actually, is involved in the development of that. It's an antibody-based test that can determine if you're currently positive for COVID-19 or if you were already infected in the past and maybe you didn't know it. Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak to Vahid Shababi, who's the COO of Victory Square Technologies.
0: We founded Victory Square Health in 2016 to accelerate the development for personal medicine and technology solutions. Now, uh, diagnostic testing was one of our main uh, focus. And uh, the COVID test is not the only diagnostic test that Victory Square Health is, is offering today. Earlier this year, uh, we acquired a company from Brazil that they were featured in Forbes Brazil and basically they had seven, eight different diagnostic tests. One of them was around COVID. So uh, the the way that the test works, there are two different tests that uh, you know we have um, that going through approval in some jurisdictions has received approval in the other jurisdictions and the other countries. One is the ELISA test, which is a three hours lab test, and the second one is a fifteen minutes rapid test. The fifteen minutes rapid test is very similar to the pregnancy test from from the shape of it, and with the the drop of the blood it will tell you within 15 minutes that if you are uh, infected with COVID-19 uh, at the moment, or you're not, or you had it in past, and your body is immune to that. This is based on the antibody that, uh, that uh, our bodies start producing after having any virus, uh, you know, in, in our systems. And that's how our 15 minutes rapid test works.
3: And how accurate is the test?
0: So uh, within the clinical validation that we have for our rapid test, we received the average of 96.67% for accuracy for the test. These are the numbers that, uh, you know, was reported through the clinical validation and has been submitted to FDA, Health Canada, EU, and all the other jurisdictions that either received uh, the, the approval or were going through the approval process.
3: So now, I know that you've received emergency use authorization by the FDA in the United States, but Health Canada is still reviewing the test, correct?
0: We have received the permission of sales and uh, distribution by FDA under EUA. The United States made it easier by having a different stages of approval uh, when you're going through it during the pandemic. And the first stage is for them to basically with no objections, they give you permission to start selling it. Then the second part is, is uh, authorization and approval. So we received the first stage so the product can be distributed and sold in the United States. With Health Canada, um, uh, our application is under review with Health Canada. And, you know, they've been um, going back and forth with us on a bunch of questions and and clarifications and additional information that required. And and right now, we're going through the process with Health Canada.
3: Uh, In advance of that, though, you do have some distribution agreements, from what I understand. And one of them really interesting, you have a distribution and testing agreement with the Canadian Police Association.
0: Yes, so we have started our conversation in Canada because we are a Canadian-based, our headquarters in Vancouver, B.C. However, all these distribution contracts uh, and and partnerships are... Pending on Health Canada approval, you know we just want to make sure that we follow the process with the Canadian police. Yes, we do have this agreement with them, and has twofold. One is we had a great conversations with them that we can help the frontliners and you know all all the Canadian police members with with the test, and uh, you know we as part of the program we decided to also donate uh, tests to the families of the members that being diagnosed by by COVID nineteen and till they get a negative results. Uh because as part of the community and especially during the pandemic, all the frontliners that, you know, has been helping the community, I feel they've done a lot of sacrifices and, and, and being a part of the being part of the community and paying back to the community is, is, is a big part of victory score.
3: Now of course again this is pending approval, but once, you know, fingers crossed you do get that approval if everything works out, how fast could you be producing these these tests, what kind of demand would you be able to meet?
0: So right now, uh, we are set to uh, produce between, uh, you know, five to nine million a month. Uh, However, uh, we are in conversations with uh, production labs based in Canada, as well that we are, uh, you know, hoping to Finalize some agreement to start producing within Canada. That is going to not only increase our uh, production uh, capacity, but also is going to help us with uh, the, the the shipment and distributions. Um, uh, right now, our distribution line uh, is set and scalable uh, in a way that, uh, upon receiving the approval, we should be able to deliver the you know the our, our orders between three to five weeks uh, as soon as we receive the approval.
3: What kind of challenges do you foresee that you'll be facing with getting this approval? Does it seem like it'll be a a real uphill battle? Or is this something that you think will be realistically approved?
0: Uh, It's a hard question to answer because I don't want to uh, make a decision before the decision being made. However, we do have all the numbers requirements that Health Canada is requesting for any test to have. Um, The the biggest difference that we we saw in in the approval process for uh, Health Canada, uh, EU or or F, uh, fda or even in visa in brazil is during the pandemic they do it in stages and they tell you okay so you you don't have you're not fully approved but you can start selling because you have this bare minimum requirements that we need to have then you're going to go to this stage and this stage on the health canada side i feel one part of it was to start with uh i uh, you know i think uh, health canada was not in favor of the rapid test uh for for good reasons uh but uh, at this time i feel with the pandemic is happening. It's just a matter of testing people. Uh, again, like even if the even there are tests that out there that accuracy is not as high as 96 or 97% and they're around, you know, a low 90 or 90%. I feel with what is happening right now, it's just about testing people. And if anybody is testing positive, you know, they go through the protocol that Health Canada has because I really think Health Canada has done a great job by having a great protocols within uh, Canada, and, and you know having that's one of the reason our cases has been controlled, but uh, the testing is taking a lo- uh, you know a long time, and testing is, is is one part that I feel majority of the community wish it was easier to do. So um, right now we're going through the process. Uh, you know uh, we're very optimistic that you know things is gonna move forward, uh, and and hopefully we we'll receive the approval based on the framework that has been uh, provided to us by Health Canada. Uh, but again, this is uh, like any other approval we have. To follow the process, and we have to be respectful to the process, uh, and uh, to, to, to receive the final answers, and we re- announce the public.
1: That is Vahid Shababi, who's the COO of Victory Square Technologies. They are working on a fifteen-minute. COVID-19 antibody-based test. It would tell you if you're currently positive for the virus or maybe if you'd already had it in the past and you didn't even know it. So our Nikki Reitmeyer has been reading up on basking sharks. They are huge and they used to be a much more common sight off our coast here on the West Coast, but they've largely been killed off in our local waters. But some researchers remain hopeful that they could make a return. So Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Scott Wallace, a senior research scientist at the the David Suzuki Foundation.
4: Well, a basking shark looks very much, very similar to a great white shark that people may be familiar with just from uh, watching movies, except for when they open their mouths, they have no teeth at all. Over time, uh, the teeth have kind of evolved away to uh, essentially just be a big cavity that's very good at uh, filtering out plankton rather than attacking large animals.
3: That's certainly a relief for anyone who has a fear of sharks.
4: Yeah, and, uh, you know, when when you see one from the surface, you know, you would... If you're not sure what you're looking at, you wouldn't. You may not know exactly if it was a, uh, a predatory shark or not, but um, there's certainly a few telltale signs about their behavior that would give it away if you're familiar with them. You know, primarily is that they're you know quite slow and they tend to kind of feed right at the surface with their mouths wide open. And there's no other large shark in our waters that would do that.
1: They are so large, they can grow to be as big as a school bus. A typical mature adult basking shark is 25 to 30 feet long. However, as we mentioned, they're not really a common sight anymore in our waters. They feed on plankton and they were driven to near extinction off our coast.
4: There's this perception of, you know, something big and it's competing with us and we have to kind of get rid of them. That's one sort of underlying theme. But the real clincher was that well, fisheries often take place in the oceans where the oceans themselves are productive. You know, a lot, a lot of things going on there and that's where they, the, these sharks would feed, but on small plankton. And so, you know, they, they're huge and they would just bumble along with their mouths open. But when they did so, they would they'd run right into uh, salmon fishing gill nets, these big nets that look basically like a floating volleyball net, essentially. They would get ensnarled in the net, and their immediate response is to kind of get themselves out of it, which is which would entangle them more. And if, when you get an animal this big, it would just kind of – it get wrapped up like a big blanket and essentially destroy the gear. And, of course, they would die themselves because at one point on this coast, there were so many of these sharks and in interfering with so many fisheries that the fishermen at times time said – Kind of asked the government to to kind of help them out and help us get rid of these 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 nuisances, these pests, and that became the um, their ultimate demise. Basically, the government uh, designed a big blade that was mounted on their patrol vessel, and this blade could be lowered when a captain of the when the captain of the vessel saw a basking shark, they would lower the blade and essentially slice these big sharks in half, and uh, just completely, uh, you know, ignorant about how. You know how susceptible they are to uh, mortality. There wasn't that many of them, probably to start off with, because they're they're large, they're slow to reproduce, they're long lived. You know this eradication program ran for about 15 years. It ended in 1969, and now we're you know over 50 years later, and you know that it, we're still feeling the effects of that with very few basking sharks being sighted in our waters.
1: Yeah, that description sounded really awful, didn't it? So is he optimistic that we could potentially see the basking shark return in a significant way?
4: There is some little bit of hope for optimism because even though the eradication program officially ended in 1969, there was about three or four years in the early 1990s when they showed up in relatively big numbers in, in Clockwood Sound. And I mean, like relatively big numbers, meaning like probably 20 or 30 of them. And so, you you know, there is that sense that they're out there, and because they're not like a marine mammal that needs to breathe, I mean, they could be in our waters and five feet under the surface, and you would never know it. Like, there's no reason for them to come up. They get their name, Basking Shark, because they are quite often seen on the surface, not basking, which you'd think would be just like relaxing in the sun, but it's actually more appropriately feeding on the surface. But they've been they've been recorded to feed down several hundred meters, too. So, you know, there is you know, a possibility that they're just around and we just don't see them.
1: Oh, we hope so, right? It'd be so cool to actually be able to see a basking shark off our coast. Well, did you know that this is actually waste reduction week? So we thought we would learn a little bit more about that. So joining us now is Encorp CEO, Alan Langdon. Good morning, Alan.
5: Good morning, Simi. How are you?
1: I am good, thank you. I think this is a big deal to be marking because you've got a lot going on at Return It. Like, What are those new systems that you've got all set up?
5: Yeah, we've been really rolling out in the last year, um, our express system, which is really about moving to a contactless, touchless uh, recycling system. Uh, so we have two things. One is uh, people can use it in depot, which is essentially they just uh, sign up for an online account, um, bring their containers down unsorted in a bag. Uh, they can print a label off of the depot and they put the label on the bag of the depot. And then uh, they just drop and go. And then we send them the money to an online account. And then just to increase the accessibility, we started um, implementing these express-and-go unstaffed stations. So there's solar-paneled, panne- solar reconfigured seat um, containers that uh, essentially the same service, drop-and-go. We've got one of those at the North Shore Transfer Station, as well as one up at the SFU Burnaby.
1: And how have they been working?
5: Consumers love them. You know, I think they like the convenience. I think they like the um, ability not to have to go into a depot and not have to... Uh, you know, sort the containers and wait in line. And certainly during the pandemic, it's been huge. So we probably started the year with about 50,000 customers. And just since the end of September, we've had another 60,000 customers. So we've essentially doubled the number of people using the system. And, you know, I think part of it's the pandemic, but I also think part of it's, you know, a growing part of our consumers just want the most convenient solution possible.
1: And so you said this had started like before the pandemic even began. So what put you down this road of, of trying to do this more contactless system?
5: Uh, really, it was about convenience. We're looking at our consumers, uh, both the consumers we have today as well as consumers of tomorrow, you know, our Gen Z and millennials. And really, for them, they like recycling. You know, they're big proponents. They actually you know, have a lot of strong and passionate views about the environment as a whole, um, but just weren't recycling in the way that we wanted them to because it just wasn't convenient enough. And so if we want this system to be sustainable over the long term, you know, we need the you know, millennials and Gen Zs of today want to recycle and so, yeah, we went down this road of starting the system. Um, you know, we'd piloted it for a few years, but I think, you know, really in 2019 is when we decided that this really was the future for us.
1: So now how has it changed? How has the deposit structure changed? Because I understand there there have been some changes to that as well.
5: Yeah, so one of the things we wanted to make as well is, is make the simple make the system simpler for people. Uh, so when I started at CEO, we had three deposit levels, 5, 10, and 20. And I think it became clear that uh, really we needed to get to one deposit level to make the system simpler. So last November, we um, raised the deposit level of our small containers from 5 to 10 cents. And then recently on October 1st, we lowered the deposit on our containers over a liter from 20 to 10. So now every container in our system is 10 cents, which makes it easier for the consumer to understand how much money they wrote back. 10 containers is a dollar, 20 is $2. But also it'll help us make the system simpler for operators down the future. In the back, right now, we're sorting into as many as twenty-one categories. We're hoping we could reduce that to three, and just make the whole system more efficient.
1: Wow! How would you reduce that to three? So you would combine more categories together?
5: Exactly, and that really wasn't possible in the past because of the uh, various uh, deposit levels. So if we can do that, uh, we'll you know drop it to three categories. And then the next stage for us really is how can we need to use more automation into the system? So it's great we have this contactless system on the front. How can we do something similar in the back where we take greater use of automation and so people can either use RV reverse vending machines on the front or we just have automated sorting in the back so we can reduce the touch points for some of our workers as well.
1: That is fascinating. Well, Alan, thanks for explaining it to us this morning.
5: Thanks so much for having me, Simi.
1: All right. That is Alan Langdon, the CEO of Encore Pacific. And they are, of course, the recycling program here in BC. It is Waste Reduction Week and they've got a a new system uh, from doing this. And I saw one of these big, you know, container systems now that they've got there. And it sure makes a difference for a lot of people too. Every election has them, some more than others. We like to call them bozo eruptions, but they are not as amusing as the name might suggest. It's usually when a candidate It goes off script, says something that is embarrassing, controversial, whatever the case may be. And then the party leader of whatever party has some backpedaling and some dealing with to do as a result of it. There has been racism, claims of that. There has been claims of misogyny, sexism, you name it. But each party leader seems to deal with this a little bit differently. So is there even a best way for a leader to handle a candidate that's gone rogue? Like, do you fire them right away to put an end to it? That leads to other problems, as we saw for Andrew Wilkinson and the B.C. Liberals. But let's talk more about that this morning with Dr. Kimberly Spears, who's a teacher at the University of Victoria with a Ph.D. in political science. Dr. Spears, thanks for being here. Oh,
6: my pleasure, Sunny. Thanks,
1: I get the feeling that for as long as we have been voting or having democracy, we've probably had to deal with these kinds of situations.
6: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, what I'm seeing is that, you know, kind of society woke (laughs) in the past couple of years with the Me Too Too, uh, movement, the Black Lives Matter movement that we're seeing, you know, started in the States and um, is being supported here as well. Um, so I think, you know, perhaps right now that, um, it, it's just deemed to be perhaps more of an accepting or safer environment, uh, to come out and, you know, state, you know, this is what people have said to me. This is what people have done to me. And, um, and so that's why I think we're perhaps we're seeing, you know, more, more incidents than perhaps, in previous campaigns.
1: Do you think they have an impact, do you think on the electric? Do people take those and go, well, I'm definitely not voting for that person now.
6: I think so. Um, To a certain extent, what I'm finding is, you know, and you mentioned right from the outset, you know, how do the leaders respond? And I'm just finding that, as you mentioned, like, it's sporadic. And I think also kind of this underlying current is just, you know, what the seat makeup was um, when the legislature ended. So both Liberals and NDPs had had 41 seats. So they're in an incredibly risky situation if they expel a candidate during the election, given... Yeah, they each hold the same amount of seats, and they both need to retain the seat number of seats that they have, but win additional ones. So perhaps even though the leaders, you know, may in other circumstances mm-hmm. um, expel a candidate, I I don't think they they will, or just you know, it's it would be highly rare, like with you know what Wilkinson um, did with. Um, the candidate Lori Tronis. Laurie Tronis. Yeah.
1: yeah, but that was a pattern, right? I think that got to a point where he'd been given many chances, and this was kind of the straw exactly. that broke the camel's back. So would you say that perhaps candidates, they have a gimme? You've got one instance, but try not to embarrass the leader?
6: Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I, I think, too, with Tronas, you know, he held that um, social conservative Part <laughs> paradigm of the uh, of the BC Liberals, and you're right. You know he's been kind of under watch for um, a few years, just in terms of you know kind of the other um, concerning things that he said, um, and the other incidents um, that have arose. Yeah, it's you know is it a, a one time um, incident that they have said these things? Um, that appears to be the case. And um, so what we've seen is, uh, you know, um, apologies. Um, you know, some have also stated there's been non-apologies where, you know, people right. who said these things, you know, felt forced. So they give the non-apology and it's not sincere and so forth. Um, and, you know, just in the last couple of days with uh, the Nathan Cullen um, incident.
7: Another
6: one. yeah. Oh, I don't know <laughs> Yeah, there's quite a few. And and I found it interesting, you know, that Horgan, you know, basically gave him heck um, for what he did. And, you know, he said he's disappointed and so forth and that he's spoken with the candidate. Um, and uh, just, I mean, it's interesting right now because um, even though uh, Cullen has apologized um, and the Hayden Nation has stated that, They've accepted his um, apology and so forth. Um, um, The uh, 10 hereditary chiefs of the Gixton Nation Mm -hmm. um, also want um, Horgan to remove Cullen as a candidate. So that, you know, the apology isn't enough. Um, And so that's what I'm finding interesting is in this campaign. You know, recognizing, you know, the equal number of seats. You know, what does it take? for a candidate to get punted, you know, from the race. And, right. Um,
1: yeah, what does it yeah. take, I guess? So it used to be that you could apologize and move on, but what you're saying is it sounds like in a lot of these cases the apology now is not enough.
6: Yeah, that seems to be the case. And I, I in one of my courses I I talk about, you know, the art of the public apology, and, and we compare uh, different types of uh, apologies made, both in the private sector and, uh, and the public sector, and I get the students to assess, you know, what right. you know, does it seem to do and so forth. And, and I think there's just been so many apologies made, and people, I think, recognize, well, that's not enough. We want to see some changes in, yeah. in behavior and so forth. Dr. So.
1: Spears, can you think of one, then, that you hold up as now there was a good apology? Um... <laughs> Jeez, that's um, that's bad considering how many times people apologize for stuff out there.
6: <laughs> do, do you know what? I, I really, um, and for those that haven't um, viewed this video, I really encourage you to see um, the video that uh, Rishi Sharma from Saanich South, uh, he and some of the folks that were putting up the signs on Saturday yes. night. when Yeah, if you haven't seen that, please go see it. And in one sense, I, like, I, I applaud him so much for responding um, to, you know, racial slurs where that was threatening. And he, you know, as one of his um, supporters said, he responded in love. And he responded, you know, just by the attack, by just saying, thank you for your comments. And he just kind of laughed it off in one sense at the end, because he said, you know, this is just something that he deals with every day and I think you know that hit me um right and I, well, you know I knew that but it was it's just a really moving video
1: yeah it's not always easy to do though Dr. Spears thank you for your time
6: oh you're welcome thanks me
1: you know it's not every day that you get a press release from the police like this one that we are about to talk about Nikki Reitmeyer is with us for more on this good morning
3: Nikki Good morning, Simi. So back in early September, businesses around Metro Vancouver were reporting that they had experienced break-ins. Particularly, the Quitlam RCMP began to investigate, and what they found was these suspects, who eventually they arrested, were tunneling from one business into the adjacent business and robbing the business next door via this tunnel that they had created from one spot to the next. That's crazy. And they showed a picture of it too. Yeah, they showed a picture of it and they went through the wall. So they didn't, you know, kind of tunnel underground and then up through and over like something out of Shawshank Redemption. They went through the wall, through the drywall and out into the next business. And they ended up knocking off that place.
1: Okay, so this actually is this is more than one business, which is what makes this story so interesting. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, exactly. They were doing this to a number of businesses and RCMP ended up arresting a 43 year old man and a 39 year old woman. And now they're facing these combined charges that include 10 counts of break and enter and one count of possession of break in instruments. Okay, well, you know what happens when you have a story like this, Nikki? I think I know what happens. We start to think about heist movies, don't we?
1: (laughs) We start to think about heist movies because immediately when I heard this and I saw the picture, I thought of the opening scene from the movie Oceans 13, where uh, Brad Pitt is part of a crew that is doing this, that is tunneling into another business. And then I started thinking about great heist movies just in general. Like, what would be on your list? Mm, uh, The Oceans movies are great, aren't they? I do love them.
3: Do we say the Thomas Crown Affair qualifies as a heist mm-hmm. movie? Which one? Steve McQueen one or the Pierce Brosnan one? I prefer the... Well, I like the Pierce Brosnan yeah, I I'm one just because messing that's with the you. era. <laughs> and you know I like Pierce Brosnan, okay? We've I talked know. about this before. I love Pierce Brosnan. So yeah, I would lean towards that one. I, th- I think it qualifies as a heist movie to Does some it? degree. Yeah, I guess. There was the theft of the
1: painting that was kind of the middle of that. But I'm talking like a genuine movie that's all about some kind of amazing heist. Like I love the Ocean's Eleven, right? Mm -hmm. That's a great movie. The 2001, like George Clooney, Brad Pitt, that one. But a little bit too old for you perhaps, but a lot of people out there might agree with me on this one. The Sting was also a great, like con man movie.
3: Okay. I have not seen it, but I'll have to put it on my movie list, especially because we're supposed to get some cold weather over the next few days. I'll be watching that. Uh, What about The Italian Job?
1: Yeah. You know, I've debated the Italian job many times with friends of mine over the years who love the Italian job. I like it. I like it. It's okay. I mean, Edward Norton plays a great villain in that. Okay. What about, do, what about what yeah. about The Usual
3: Suspects? Oh, The Usual Suspects, of course. A classic, classic movie. I know She's it's kind of lost some of its
1: allure because it's got Kevin Spacey in it. Mm. But back in the day, that was like the ultimate kind of
3: great heist movie. Oh, that's so true. I'd love if anyone can think of a great heist movie that they just adore. Give us a call on the Buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, a heist movie that maybe we've we've forgotten while well, we've been having this conversation. And like I said, look, the weather's going to be nasty for the next few days Make a or list. supposed to be. So yes. yeah, we'll, we'll need to stay inside and watch the movies anyways. I like any good
1: heist movie. Heat, Heat was a great movie that was Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. That's right. a good heist oh, movie. Geez. If anybody wants wow, to check that's a that
3: out, back too. Yeah,
1: I know. I saw that in the movie. That it was really good. So, we'll. I'll compile a list. People can email me as well. simi at cknw.com. Let's talk about what's going on in Surrey right now. A report by the general manager of planning and development in that city went before city council last night. What it revealed was a critical situation for the homeless population in Surrey coming up this winter. Let's find out more about that now. Joining us now is Surrey Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Sumi, for having me. What was so concerning in this report? What are some of the alarms being raised here?
8: Well, there's a pretty large alarm that's being raised. Uh, At the end of the day, we need about 200 uh, shelter beds for emergency weather and uh, we only have located less than 60. And uh, so that's a huge, huge mountain for us to climb to, uh, to find that additional 140 or so uh, shelter beds.
1: Yeah, that does seem like a big mountain to climb there. Are efforts being made, though, to find those beds?
8: Uh, they are, Um but this, uh, the complication to all this is that um, with now COVID restrictions and COVID um, protocols put in place, some of the shelter shelters that were there um, have, have had to have less people, obviously, because of distancing. And then the other piece is some of the churches and other facilities we're using are just uh, not wanting to do it anymore because of the concerns.
1: Okay, so then what what are some of the challenges? at location? Is it like are there facilities or are people have are they having to track this down now too?
8: Yeah, exactly. So there are two challenges. I mean BC housing has been uh, great at stepping up for us and I know that BC Housing will come uh and and uh come to us with the money. So um, we're confident in that. Um, but the challenge is finding the locations. And so our our staff are out there uh, looking hard uh, for those kind of um, placements that we can put these uh, facilities in. And
1: Councillor Locke, what has happened in Surrey over the past year? Like, we hear an awful lot about the homeless situation in Vancouver, but can you give us an idea of what's been going on in
8: Surrey? Yeah, you know, um, one of the things we all do, everybody in Metro Vancouver, is the homeless count every year. And a challenge for Surrey, um, we certainly have gentrification in the downtown core, so, you know, we're pushing people out. Housing affordability is something right across Metro that has impacted us dramatically. But the other piece in Surrey, we're 361 square kilometers of land. We're bigger than Vancouver and Richmond and Burnaby put together in, in land geography. When we were doing the count, that was difficult. We, I know we didn't come close to it. Um, we counted 644 people that were homeless, uh, but we did it all with volunteers. So it's um, the experts are telling us probably triple that number.
1: Triple that number?
8: Triple it, yeah. We have people living in our parks. We have large uh, areas of of uh, parkland, but we're finding people urban camping more and more. We're finding people on, you know, business doorsteps, uh, just as they do in Vancouver. It's, um, it's really increased dramatically over the last, uh, the last year. That's for sure. So
1: how can 140 beds be sufficient then if you think there's many more people out there homeless?
8: Well, and that's, uh, that's our challenge. We only have in the city of Surrey two people in social planning. That's just not enough. And um with a budget that we have we are very focused on where the budget money is going as um most people in Surrey know and I, I won't get into where that money's going because uh that's that's definitely the uh the police fund. But if you look at other cities our size, they probably have closer to 15 or more people working in social planning. We need to put more attention on uh, our most vulnerable citizens.
1: Is Do you think part of the problem in Surrey, Councillor Locke, the fact that perhaps the homelessness situation is not as visible as it is in Vancouver?
8: Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right on about that, Sammy. When people can camp in a park and nobody knows and they're it, it happens all the time. The only time it gets really recognized is if they're in one of the forested areas and they start fires. But other than that, they can live in our forested areas for months and months and nobody will know.
1: So what are the next steps then? Like it cold weather is coming.
8: Yeah, the cold, well, we already saw on on uh, Sunday, it was I think uh, eight or nine degrees. It won't be long before it's cold and uh, rainy, and uh, so we have to get looking for those spaces. And our city doesn't seem to want to use public spaces, but I'm I am uh, adamant we are going to have to use our public spaces. And um, it's not the best uh, the best relief, but it's better than no relief at all
1: all right well thank you for your time on
8: that this morning thank you for caring about this important issue for us Simi. it's uh It's a challenge, that's for sure. It sure sounds
1: like it. That's Brenda Locke, Surrey City Councillor, talking about the homeless situation in Surrey. And I think that is exactly true. What we talked about there is it doesn't mean there's fewer homeless people just because you can't see as many in Surrey. They have a lot more space there to essentially spread out. They're not as visible, but they are still there and they still do need help. What is going on in Ottawa this morning? All of a sudden we're hearing in the news what talk of a potential federal election Kind of machinations are happening there. So we're joined now by Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman for the latest. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Yeah, what is happening? Why this
7: talk of an election? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. What is happening? It's one of those mornings where things change by the minute. So I'll try and bring you up to speed Please. on the latest. But uh, we know that conservatives have been pushing for a while now for this idea of an uh, anti-corruption committee, a new committee to look into things like the WE affair uh, and other issues of questions over uh, propriety of spending during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so that is uh, a motion that's being discussed right now this morning. The cons- the uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole held a news conference talking about what they're calling for in their opposition motion. He did say that they would be open to changing the name of the committee, which was a sticking point for the Liberals, uh, the name being the Anti-Corruption Committee. That was that was an issue. Uh, But Aaron O'Toole laid out uh, his his position or the party's position on this motion. Minutes after that, the Liberal House Leader Pablo Rodriguez came out and said this was a confidence motion, and and as you know, a confidence motion means a vote on that. Uh, if uh, if the vote fails, it would trigger an election. So that was a a, a big step forward there. The, those rumors of a federal election were going on for a while, then they were quiet. Well, now they're back in in full swing, and more than just rumors. Uh, if the Liberal House right. Leader is uh, calling this a confidence vote, so uh, the Conservatives were clear that that's not what they were. Looking for that they don't, that they said they don't have confidence in the way the Liberals handled the we affair, but that they're not calling for a confidence vote. It's the Liberals who are now pushing for this to be one. The vote itself won't happen until Wednesday, and uh, we understand there are behind the scenes talks going on to see if, if other amendments to the Conservative motion would, would change things, but really a uh, changing by the minute situation here in Ottawa.
1: So, how can the Liberals just say that they're going to make this a confidence vote? Like, how does a vote on a committee suddenly become a confidence vote.
7: Right. Well, if you listen to uh the 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 government house leader Pablo Rodriguez says if you read through the fine print of this motion it's really calling confidence of the government into question. Uh the Conservatives are are refuting that saying that it's about confidence in terms of how they've handled that one issue and how they've handled things during the pandemic. Uh you know it's a subjective question I suppose in terms of uh, in terms of what makes a confidence vote or what is a question of confidence in the government obviously the opposition is there to hold the government to account and to point out issues, you know, every day of the year right. uh, I- in Parliament. So uh, it's a touchy question. What is a confidence vote? Yeah. Especially an import, a more important question in a minority situation like the government uh, finds itself in now. So how all the chips will fall here, where the NDP uh, will fall on the issue, where the Bloc will fall on the issue, and I believe we're expecting to hear from the block leader uh, a little later today. All those things are, are key in a minority situation uh, as this develops.
1: For the South- Sounds crazy. Okay, so while they're <laughs> arguing over this committee, Abigail, are they actually getting any other work done? Like, I know they were supposed to have the Commons debate on what's going on in Nova Scotia, too, right? The fishery situation.
7: Yeah, exactly. And and to put uh, to, to the behind the scenes look for your listeners is that when you booked this uh, hit with me, that's all we were yes. going to be talking about, right? The the, the fishery situation, uh, obviously, of dire concern right now, what's happening in Nova Scotia, and we were supposed to be talking all about that, but the, the, that's how quickly things uh, have changed. Here in Ottawa this morning, in terms of that confidence motion. So on fisheries, uh, there was an emergency debate, as you say, held last night. MPs discussed it for about four hours. The Liberals were taking criticisms on all sides for not acting here. Um, as 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 you and, and your listeners may know, this goes back to a 1999 Supreme mm-hmm. Court decision. Um, the government's been criticized by both Indigenous and commercial fishers for not taking action uh, or the right action on on this file all the way along. And a big question question here is the definition or more importantly, the lack of a definition for moderate livelihood. So indigenous fishers were granted the right to fish for a moderate livelihood in that 1999 uh, decision, but no specifics were ironed out in terms of what exactly a moderate livelihood is. And with conservation of lobster, the, the big question here or the big argument from commercial fishers, uh, that's really an important point here. So we have been asking, you know, are, the government, are you trying to come up with a definition? Definition of that. Yeah. Yesterday, the fisheries minister uh, said that they that that they were negotiating with First Nations. They, that she would not negotiate with public. Sorry, she would not negotiate in public. That there were talks happening behind closed doors. Um Bernadette Jordan saying that uh, that this isn't something the government can just I- impose a definition. That it has to come from the First Nations uh, and and work together on that. The Prime Minister is holding a news conference right now, and I a uh, good guess that he'll be asked on this topic again. But as as I said, everything's. Of changing here uh, pretty fast, so we'll see if we get any more anything more definitive from the prime minister. We had not heard from him in a news conference since things escalated with that major fire um, over the weekend. Uh, but uh, still, a lot of things to, to figure out in a conflict that, as 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 people in Nova Scotia point out, very fast. This this didn't you know erupt overnight. Yeah. This has been simmering for for months, if not years, and 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 they've been criticizing the government for for a lack of action for some time. No
1: kidding. All right, so much going on. You're going to have a busy day, Abigail. So we'll let you get back to it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent, talking about the fishery situation, in Nova Scotia, and as well now these kind of last minute machinations about now all of a sudden in the news, you're hearing what the possibility of a federal election. Are they crazy? Like what? What are they thinking all over this committee issue? So hopefully we'll get some clarity on that today. Keep it tuned in right here for the very latest.